1: back.
2: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We live in a complex, fast-changing world. Thriving in this world requires one to make fast decisions with incomplete information. But how do you do that without making too many mistakes? My guest today argues that one key is stockpiling your cognitive toolbox with lots of mental models. His name is Shane Parrish. He's a former Canadian intelligence officer and the owner of the website Fardom Street, which publishes articles about better thinking and decision-making and is read by Wall Street investors, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, and leaders across domains. We begin our conversation conversation discussing how Shane's background as an intelligence officer got him thinking hard about hard thinking and why the musings of investors Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger has had a big influence on his approach to decision making Shane then shares his overarching decision-making philosophy and explains what mental models are and why they're powerful tools to make better decisions. We then discuss why you should focus on being consistently not stupid instead of trying to be consistently brilliant and tactics you can use to make better decisions After the show's over check out our show notes at aom.is/farnham Street. Shane Parrish, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So you head up a website called Farnham Street. I don't know how I discovered you. It was a long, it was a couple of years ago and I've been following it religiously ever since then because I love it. It's, it's a website, a, a learning community dedicated to learning how to think better, make better decisions. But what's crazy is this thing. I mean, it's read by all these Wall Street investors. And leaders across fields. So, how did this? How did Farnham Street start and like become this phenomenon?
3: Well, in 2007, I made a decision that probably impacted the lives of a lot of other people. And I remember leaving work, and at the time, I worked for an intelligence agency. And it was about 2 a.m., and I was walking home, and I was struggling because I didn't know if I had made the right decision. And I went into work the next day on about three hours of sleep because I stayed up all night. And, you know, the stakes are high, right? You have your country, you have people in theater who are making decisions based on what you're doing. You have decisions that you're making that affect them. You have your team, you have their families, you have your organization, you have your country's relationship with other countries, and all of that you're making a call on, a judgment call, you know, in the wee hours of the morning after not a lot of sleep. And I went in the next morning and I said, hey, I uh, went to my boss and I was like, I don't know if I'm making these decisions right. I mean, they're working out, but I don't know if I'm, I'm doing it right. I don't know if I'm comfortable, like that I've thought about everything. I might be missing something. And he just laughed at me and said, uh, you know, everybody's in the same boat and sort of shrugged it off. And I remember going home that day going like, I think people deserve better. And I started just doing a deep dive into how to make decisions and like, how do we learn about the world that we're living in? And I went back and I ended up doing my MBA and the MBA proved relatively useless in my case, I think in part because... You know, I had six, seven, seven years of work experience at that point, which is really probably fourteen because I was working twelve to fourteen hours a day, six days a week. And you just have this different view of the world when you you've worked that much and you've done, you know, sort of all the different jobs that I've done and had all the responsibilities I had. And the world's not simple; it's complicated and it's interconnected. And you know, the MBA is very much like read this chapter and apply this to this case study. And you know, it's it, it oversimplifies things to a degree that is unhelpful. And while I was doing my MBA, I said, well, if I'm not going to learn while I'm doing my MBA, I might as well learn on my own. So I created this website. And at the time, it was called 68131.blogger.com, which we don't own anymore, but that was the, the website. And the reason that it was called that is 68131 is the zip code for Berkshire Hathaway. And the website is an homage to Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett and their way of thinking. And I figured nobody would type in five digits for a website. Like at the time, this is sort of unheard of. And I didn't want a password on the site, so I didn't choose a better domain. Mm -hmm. And then I just started keeping track of what I was learning, right? And I started with a lot of academic stuff because I figured I would never have access to academic journals. I stopped doing my homework for my MBA because it became formulaic, right? I knew what they wanted to hear. I knew how they wanted things phrased. I knew how simple the world was to them. And so I I just kind of like banged out essays that they wanted, but you didn't have to really study a lot. So my study became self-study and I started reading the letters of Berkshire Hathaway. I started reading everything I could on Charlie Munger. And I'm wondering, you know, silently in the background, why these two guys who in Omaha, Nebraska have created, you know, by all accounts, one of the biggest business successes in history and think about the world in such a complicated, interconnected way. And why, why aren't I learning that at my MBA? And then as I started to look into it, a lot of these successful people that I admire, sort of Steve Jobs and you know Elon Musk and all of, all of these people, they think about the world in this very messy sort of way. I mean, they, they have a way to bring it back to first principles or to walk around a problem in a three-dimensional way, but they realize that it's interconnected and every action that you do has an, a consequence to it. And I thought, man, this is much better way to learn. So I just started the website started writing about it. It was anonymous because I worked at an intelligence agency. I wasn't exactly about to put my name on a website. And slowly, I don't know why or how, but people started to discover the website. At first it was like one person and you can kind of see like one person following you on your RSS feed at the time. And then I think it was like two years and I had 500 and I was like, Oh my God, like, this is crazy. Like how did 500 people find this website? And It was twenty thirteen, I think, when we I became unanonymous at twenty five thousand readers. And that was a big sort of like milestone. And that is that when you changed it to Farnham Street? Yeah, because everybody's sort of like, uh, it it was like Farnham Street dot something dot, like, I don't know, at the time, it was like an easier to type version, but it was still weird. And then we went to com that year. I became unanonymous. And I think we started the email list all in the same sort of like year. And that was a, a major sort of like inflection point for us about what we were doing and what I was doing. And I was still working full time for the intelligence agency at the time. But we started to to get this audience and our audience at the time was probably 80% Wall Street. And I would say it's a lot less Wall Street as a percentage basis now. But the three main audiences we have are probably Wall Street, Silicon Valley and professional sports.
2: That's really interesting. Professional sports. Well, we can talk about that later. The Farnham Street, that's the address of Berkshire Hathaway,
3: correct? Right. So that's the street in Omaha, Nebraska, where Warren Buffett lives and works. And it's where the headquarters for Berkshire Hathaway is.
2: Okay. So before we dig into what you write about, I want to backtrack to talk about how that moment when you made that decision, when you're working for the intelligence agency, and you're like, boy, I don't know if I made the right decision. Like Before that time, so it sounds like you had a moment where you took a step back and you started thinking like doing metacognition, right thinking about how you think like so but before that, how were you making decisions? Was it just sort of okay on the fly yeah. what were you doing?
3: Yeah, if you think about it, like I mean I started august twenty eighth two thousand and one right. two weeks later, September eleventh happened, and I think like I don't know three days after that, I was promoted or. And it had nothing to do with me. It had nothing to do with my skills. It had nothing to do with sort of like how good I was as a person. It just had, I was in the right place at the right time to, to take on a leadership role. And nobody, nobody ever taught me how to make decisions. Nobody in school taught me like how to look at a problem in a three-dimensional way and walk around it from different perspectives and like all the perspectives in the room. And Nobody at work taught me how to do that either. It's sort of like you're expected to figure it out and you end up with this ad hoc process, which is often works, right? But when it doesn't work, it's hard to diagnose why it doesn't work. And then it's hard to compensate for your errors through a process. And we all have strengths and weaknesses. And ideally, we, we want to have a, a repeatable process that we can use that changes as the environment changes, but adapts to our strengths and weaknesses so it accounts for them or at least allows for us to take into account where we are naturally prone to make good decisions or bad decisions, or we're naturally prone to overconfidence in a certain scenario. And so then we want to structure something in, if possible, to reduce the biases that we might have in that sort of way and i think like you don't want to do that for every decision possible i mean we we don't want to you, you can't sometimes you have to make split second decisions and that becomes more about preparation and pattern matching and thinking through second order consequences. But often you have a lot of time to make decisions and a lot of time can be like 30 minutes and you you want to sort of structure your thinking. And not a lot of people do. And I think that's one of the reasons that we don't get better at making decisions is we always bring a slightly different approach to the table for how we're going to decide. Whereas if we sat down and we had some sort of process, it doesn't have to be formal, but that process can be like What are the variables that govern the situation? How do those variables interact with each other? And how might I be fooling myself? I mean, it can be as simple as that. And it can be more complicated depending on your strengths and weaknesses and the type of decision you're making.
2: Okay, and we'll get into those specifics here in a bit. So let's talk about Charlie Munger. So this is a guy that you were drawn to when you first started thinking about these things while you are doing your MBA. For those who aren't familiar with Munger, what does he do? I mean, he, he works at Berkshire Hathaway, but you don't hear too much about him because Warren Buffett is the guy that gets most of the attention.
3: Yeah, Buffett, Buffett gets a lot of the attention. I mean, Munger is an irreverent billionaire at this point. He's the vice chairman of Berkshire Hathaway. And he just has this very unique, almost Richard Feynman-esque view of the world and a bit of wit to him in in a way that I find intellectually stimulating, right? Like the world is complicated. I want to read about it. I want to understand that things interact. And I can't, if I only understand one portion of the world, I'm not going to understand what's going to happen when I make a decision. And he's very sort of like detailed and nuanced about how he he thinks about things and how he builds his, what he calls a lattice work of mental models. And I think that that really resonated with me while I was in school because I started seeing each chapter as not something that stands alone in and of itself, you know, sort of like each idea in business school, but something that interconnects with every other part of the world. And then it became oh, I can just add this to my work, my framework. But the next time I make a decision, I'm not going to make it just based on this new model I have. I'm going to incorporate this old model or I'm going to see if this old model incorporates. And then I'm going to check that. And now I have a better, more accurate view of the world. You can think of it sort of as in like tracing paper, right? If you draw lines on each sheet of paper, each sheet of paper gives you a view into the world. But if you put those paper on top of each other, well, now you might be able to see what the picture actually is. And that's what we're doing. Right. We're, we're struggling to sort of like go through the world and make these decisions. And if you think about what we do when we make decisions, a lot of us make poor initial decisions. And then we spend so much time correcting that. And it could just be like a miscommunication, it could be that we didn't think of the second order consequences it could be that we we didn't have the right models in our head to accurately see the problem for what it was so we didn't know what to do so we're slightly off course but then we spend a ton of time chasing that down which causes stress and anxiety and it's part of the reason that we work so long and there's a different approach to that. And one of the different approaches is like, can I learn about the world or intelligently prepare for the decisions I'm likely to make? And what does that intelligent preparation look like? How do I make it a little bit less about luck and make it more about what's within my control?
2: Yeah. And one of the things I love about Charlie Munger is, as you said, he's very nuanced and it's very sophisticated, his thinking, but the way he explains his thinking process, it's very folksy it's very simple and you're like, whenever, whenever you read something, you're like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Why didn't I think of that before?
3: Yeah, it's so hard to disagree with him, even when he's controversial, right? Like one of his opinions is that the U.S. shouldn't be selling their oil. They should be keeping it and importing oil because oil is cheap and it's a finite resource. And if you think about that at the start, you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. But the more you dig into it, you're like, oh, that probably actually, if you take a different time horizon, that might actually be the best decision that a nation could make.
2: Right. We'll uh, get into some more mongerisms here in a bit. So before we get into you know, specific, I don't know, heuristics or hacks or whatever you want to call them to make decisions, because I think that's what a lot of people want first. They want like tactics. Let's talk about sort of overarching principles that you use. That guide like pretty much everything. It's like meta principles, like first principles that you use to guide decisions in your own life, or if you, whenever you consult someone or coach someone, like what do you, what do you tell them?
3: Well, so we have five principles listed on the website that we have, which is fs.blog/slash principles, and it's kind of just guiding framework for like what we can think about, right? If you, and the first one is direction over speed. And the concept there is if you're pointed in the wrong direction, it doesn't matter how fast you're traveling, right? Inversely, if you're locked into your desired destination, all progress is positive, no matter how slow or small it seems, right? You're going to reach your goal eventually. And if you think about this as a lot of us spend a lot of time on speed. And not only do we have subtle cues and organizations that we want to signal to other people that we're working fast, that we're busy, that we're we're doing things, but we don't actually stop and take time and think about like, where are we going? I might be really busy in these meetings, but does that mean we're actually making progress? Or does it mean like, I just have this endless calendars of meetings? Like, does it actually contribute to the work, right? And if you think of velocity, velocity is a concept in physics that not only has speed involved in it, but it has displacement, right? So it has a vector associated with it, whereas speed is just, it's just fast. Like if you think of a plane leaving New York and going to LA, well, one plane leaves New York and starts flying around in circles and the other plane leaves New York and it's headed for LA, right? They're both flying at the same speed, but one of them is going to their destination and the other is just flying around. It's going just as fast. And I think that concept is something that we have to keep in mind, not only in our personal lives and our relationships, but in in the workplace. The second principle that we talk about on the website is live deliberately. And we settle into habits and we simply live Often the same year over year again, right? We're waiting for some future event before we start occurring, or before we start living. Like we're, we're waiting for something to happen and we're not conscious about the decisions that we're making. We're not conscious about who we spend our time with. We're just defaulting to what we've done in the past. And so while we wait for a raise or maybe a career opportunity or ideal relationship, I mean, life is passing us by and life is so fragile. I and mean, I think we forget that. There, There is no thing more fragile than life. I remember I was in Hawaii this year and I ended up, somebody drowned on the beach and they, they died right in front of me. And I was like, I was like crying and I was like, oh my God, like this person is the same age as me. They look fit and healthy, just like me. And their life is over. And you know maybe they had an aneurysm while they were swimming, or a heart attack. I, I don't. I don't know the medical sort of like reason of this, but I was like, man, life can go at any point in time. And if you realize that and you recognize it, you can start setting aside time today to pursue your dreams. Right? You can start today to learn the things that you'd like to know. You can reach out today and repair a relationship that you want to repair. You can jettison this dead weight that's holding you down and you can be more free, but to do that, you have to be conscious. So living deliberately is about awareness and purposeful action. The third thing that we talk about on the website from a principles point of view is thoughtful opinions held loosely, right? So the, the common refrain is strong opinions held loosely, but we we prefer thoughtful, right? Because often like you have to look at where we get our opinion. So how do you respond when you're faced with facts that contradicts a long-held belief of yours? I mean, you should have your ego wrapped up in outcomes and not necessarily you being right. And I think that's the key to that principle, right? You want to update your knowledge. You want to update your database, your mental sort of like a repository of information with new facts. And I think the fourth principle we talked about Is uh, principles outlive tactics. And, you know, the example we use on the website is football, but another example is sort of the chef and the line cook, right? So a line cook is really good at maybe following a recipe, but they don't necessarily know how the ingredients interact with one another to form a recipe, and they don't necessarily know what that recipe is intended to do. So when something goes wrong, they might not be able to sort of understand what's happening. And so we we want to understand things, right? We, we want to understand not only the what, which is tactics, we want to understand the how and you know, sometimes we can get the results we want through tactics. But if if you want results in a changing environment, you must also understand the why, right? By understanding principles that shape the reality, you understand the why. And alternatively, like another way to view this is tactics might get you, you what you want, but if you're not a principled person, you you might sort of like end up wanting to redo your life. And if you think that sounds crazy, there's this great example, and this time of year is perfect, right? A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, right? So you had Ebenezer Scrooge and he wanted to be the richest uh, man in the city. He wanted to be respected. He wanted to be well-known. And I think that, He did all of those things, but he did it in a way that was mutually exclusive from things that really mattered. And I've seen this play out over and over again, right? I used to be the, I used to work directly for the deputy minister in the intelligence agency. And you you see this sort of stuff happen where people get to their position of power. Through tactics, and then maybe want to redo at the end of their career. Maybe those tactics are mutually exclusive from the relationships that they want after. And the fifth sort of principle we talk about is owning your actions, right? And it's incredibly difficult to do. We're not programmed to expose our egos or to make ourselves vulnerable when we make mistakes or do something stupid. But one of the most powerful ways that I've discovered in life to make giant leaps forwards is not only accept that we'll screw up, but Actually, seek out like how do we correct this? How do we how do we get better the next time we're going to do this? It's mostly through refusing to accept ownership of our mistakes that we protect our ego, we protect our worldview, we protect that we're we're not complicit in why this went wrong, right? Th- those things prevent us from learning, and we don't want to. We don't want to be prevented from learning. I think it was Stephen Covey who said that, you know, proactive people don't blame circumstances, conditions, or conditioning for their behavior. We want to take ownership for our decisions and our lives. And, you know, there is an element of luck. There's a lot of elements of luck that happen in the world, right? Like what country you're born in, what your socioeconomic status when you're born in, what your parents are like. That, that You don't control any of that. But at some point, you grab the steering wheel, and you—you might not be the next Kanye, and you know maybe that's an unfair comparison. But there's a version of you that's on a trajectory, and what you should be focused on is like, how do I maximize my own personal trajectory, given where I should be, right? Given where I could be, and I think one of the ways that we do that is we try to go to bed smarter every day.
2: I want to go back to that principle three. Thoughtful opinions held loosely, because that's related to a mongerism that really resonated with me. He has this idea that you should have few. You, you people should have fewer opinions, and or like you shouldn't have an opinion until you can argue the other side's, you know, part of the argument as as well as they can, and then you can like earn your opinion. Is that kind of what you were going for there?
3: Yeah, I mean, we call it the work required to have an opinion. Right. And so often what I used to see when I managed a lot of people in organizations was that people would come in, they would have this really strong opinion, but they wouldn't have really thought about the other side of it. And so that they would have a ton of their own ego involved in it. And one of the ways that I used to reduce ego, and it doesn't eliminate it, but as I would, I would assign people a role in the meeting. So you would argue for or against it. Right. And then your ego comes into like, I'm really gonna argue against it even if I believe in it, because I wanna look, you know, like I know what I'm doing and I'm competent and I've thought about it. And I wouldn't tell people what role they would have before the meeting. And that was just a way to encourage people to do the homework that they need to do before they can come up with an opinion. And it helps you think about a problem in a three-dimensional way. You should be able to sit down and say, here are the common counter-arguments about what I think, and here's what I think about those counter-arguments. And you you should be able to have that discussion with yourself. And I think that intellectual playfulness, the intellectual curiosity needed to do that is, is difficult. And you can't do that for everything. Right. Sometimes you have to let other people have, a, you know, think for you and you can't think about everything, but you have to acknowledge that, you know, maybe that's not your opinion. Maybe that's just an idea instead of what should be done. Yeah.
2: And I imagine the internet makes having thoughtful opinions difficult because the internet rewards strong opinions, right? That, that shock people or are very upfront.
3: I think we're we're looking for sort of abstractions or heuristics or tactics, and we're not looking for like how those are created. And if you think about how we learn, you know, a lot of what we consume online is sort of other people's abstractions, right? Like our principles would be a great example of that. Those are abstractions that we've I've created over years that I think are valuable. And if you read those, you might understand them and you might be like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. And just like when you read a website, that's like the four things you need to do to master office politics. And those tactics probably do make sense. But what you're missing is sort of the reflection that went into those abstractions. And what you're missing from the reflection is the experience that led to that reflection. And so you're missing a lot of fluency and a lot of details that we commonly don't get. We, we skim over as readers or you know consumers of information, but it's through that that we make reflections. It's through those details that we understand when something is likely to work and when it's not likely to work. And I think that that is when we draw our own abstractions. And so if we're reading other people's abstractions or we're consuming information from other people, we're trying to consume an experience for other people what we really want to do to improve our learning is ask them, like, how did they come up with that? What variables did they consider relevant? How do those variables interact with each other? And then we can actually start to learn about the situation because now they're going to give us the context that we need to draw our own abstractions or at the very least, learn when those abstractions are more likely to serve us and when they're more likely to hurt us.
2: So we've talked about principles, like first principles here. Let's take a step down and talk about how we can look at the world before we actually make decisions. And something you have written about extensively is this idea of mental models. So for those who aren't familiar, what what are mental models and how can they help us see the world better?
3: So mental models describe the way the world works, right? They shape how we think, how we understand, and how we form beliefs. They're largely subconscious, right? They operate below our surface. We're not generally aware that we're using them at all, but we are. They're the reason that we look at a problem. the, The reason that when we look at a problem, we sort of like pick these variables that matter. These are irrelevant. They're how we infer causality. They're how we match patterns. And they're sort of like how we reason, right? And if you think about it, a mental model is simply a representation of how something works. We can't keep all the details of the world in our brains or concepts. So we use models to simplify something that's more complex into something that's organizable and understandable. And gravity is a great example of a mental model, right? And one example of how that works, and it's super simple, but if you're holding a pen, like I am right now, and I tell you I'm going to drop this and I ask you what happens, well, you know what happens. And if you hear a click and you see my hand open, you can also retrospectively try to figure out what happened because you understand this concept of gravity. But if I told you to calculate the terminal velocity of something that was falling, most of us wouldn't be able to do that. So we have this concept of gravity and it's useful, we don't necessarily need to know all the details about it, right? We don't need to know that this pen is going to fall at 9.8 meters squared per second. That's not going to help us at all. But we understand that if we drop the pen, what's going to happen? And so the idea with sort of mental models is how do we focus our time on learning mental models that are less likely to change over time so that our knowledge becomes cumulative? And how do we develop a framework for making decisions that incorporates these mental models, right? How do we think better? And if you think about thinking, the quality of your thinking is proportional to the models that you have in your head and their usefulness in the situation at hand, right? So the more models you have, you can think of it as a toolbox, the bigger your mental toolbox. So the more likely you are to have the right model to see reality in this given situation. And when it comes to improving your ability to make decisions, the variety of models that you have matters, right? Most of us, though, if you think about it, we're specialists. We, we go through high school and we start specializing in high school increasingly over and over again, right? So you go into track science or arts, you go into advanced or non-advanced, then you go to college or university, and you get more specialized. You might get the first year, which is a little more multidiscipline, but increasingly, like you live in this sort of domain that you're in. So by default, a typical engineer will think in systems. A psychologist will think in terms of incentives and a biology might think in a biologist might think in terms of evolution, but it's only by putting these disciplines together in our head that we can walk around a problem in a three-dimensional way, right? If we're only looking at the problem one way, we've got a blind spot and blind spots are how we get into trouble. And so if, if you think about a botanist sort of like looking at a forest, they may focus on the ecosystem. An environmentalist may see the impact of climate change, whereas a forestry engineer might see the state of tree growth. A business person might see the value of the timber and how much it's going to cost to exp- egg extract it. None of those people are wrong, but none of those views are able to describe the full scope of the forest, right? So mental models are about how do we develop those models that we need in our head to get a better view of reality. And I think that we don't get enough of that through college, university, or our own sort of learning. And what we've tried to do is develop a system where we talk about unchanging mental models that help give you the big ideas of the world. And Munger had said that, I think that, you know, there there's hundreds of mental models, but you know, there's a very relatively few of them carry the bulk of the weight in terms of making better decisions. And you can get esoteric ones, just like you can have a chisel in your toolbox that you might pull out on occasion, but you'll use your hammer a lot more. So there's tools that are more common than other tools that help us think and solve problems.
2: We're going to take a quick break for your word from our
3: sponsors. For
2: those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display, and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, And the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's so one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T, fabric.com slash manliness. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. So what are some examples of those sort of long lasting ones that you use on a re- regular basis to make decisions?
3: Well, I think one one of my favorites is sort of like the map is not the territory, right? And the, the concept there is the map of reality is not reality. The best maps are imperfect. Even mental models are imperfect, right? That's because they're reductions of what they represent. And if a map were to represent the territory with perfect fidelity, it would no longer be a reduction, right? And it wouldn't be useful to us if it wasn't a reduction, But a map can also be a snapshot of a point in time representing something that no longer exists. And this is an important model because we run businesses off maps. We use financial statements to evaluate whether one of our investments is doing good. Well, the the financial statements are a map that doesn't represent what's actually happening in the business. You can look to Enron as a perfect example of that. Like The financial statements leading up to the, the bankruptcy were you know and miss they didn't represent the territory that was actually happening in enron if you think about the business that we're in you can think about email lists well the size of your email list is a map but it doesn't represent the territory it doesn't tell you about the open rates it doesn't tell you about the engagement it doesn't tell you whether people care about whether they receive the email or how many emails you get if people miss it and Just thinking about dashboards and like how we run business, we have to run businesses on heuristics. But the more that we run businesses on heuristics, the less in touch we are with the territory, right? The less we see what's actually happening. And we want to keep grounded. We want to keep an eye on what the territory really looks like because we want to know when the territory shifts because a shift in the territory, a shift in the environment, a shift in the the conditions under which we're operating and the way that we're operating might mean that our map is outdated. And if we're using the wrong map, we're going to get to the wrong destination. Another one that I really like is sort of second-order thinking, right? Which is one we used at the intelligence agency all the time, right? Almost everybody can anticipate the immediate results of their actions. But that's kind of first-order thinking and it's pretty easy and it's safe, And it's a way to ensure that you kind of get the same results as everybody else. But second order thinking is thinking further ahead and thinking holistically. It requires us to not only consider our actions and their immediate consequences, but the subsequent effects of those actions as well. And failing to consider the second and third order effects can unleash disaster. If you think about running a business or doing something in life, you want to think about something where the first order consequences are negative, but the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth order consequences are positive. And the reason that you want to look at those things specifically is because there's not going to be a lot of people who do those things, right? If you think about delayed gratification is a great example of sort of like a first order negative, second order, highly likely positive, third order, highly likely positive. Saving for retirement, another example, right? Like you're suffering now, to do something for a later benefit. And those are things that you want to think about, not only in the context of business, like what pain am I willing to suffer now? What can I do now that I know is going to be negative in the short term and visibly negative? That's important, right? You want people to see how negative it is. But if I think about the second, third and fourth order consequences, those are positive consequences. And Even better if they're not super visible positive consequences. And then you can start to do things from a competitive point of view that other people can't do and they won't be able to copy and they won't understand what you're doing. And I think those things are really just different ways of seeing the world, right?
2: Yeah. And so there's lots more we can talk They're all on the website. We'll send people links there so they can go check them out. One of the other interesting things I've read that Munger talks about is that he's a voracious reader. He's reading about economics, he's reading about philosophy, he's reading biology, he's reading behavior psychology. And what what I find interesting is that he'll sometimes find ways, and as he's reading, he's developing these mental models, and he'll find ways to like apply a mental model, say, from the realm of
3: biology. That you would never think to apply to business, but he does that, right? Yeah, definitely. Like we learn this sort of domain dependence in school, which is really interesting, right? So you get presented with a physics problem in physics class and that you use this almost algorithm to solve this problem. They're going to give you a problem that looks like a certain way, and you're going to take this formula that you used, and you're going to apply it. And we're not focused on sort of like a core understanding of the underlying concepts, and we're not focused on how those concepts might apply outside of biology, outside of physics, outside of chemistry, outside of math. Like probabilistic thinking is a great example of just probability applied to thinking right? And a lot of people don't even view sort of our thinking as probabilistic, but inherently it is probabilistic. We're just trying to create better probabilities. And I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we learn about these topics and we learn about them in such a one-dimensional way because the real world doesn't present you problems that look like your grade 10 chemistry test. They're going to present you problems where the information you learned in grade 10 might be valuable for you to apply but you're not going to see it because you're not thinking about it in that way. And I think if we learn about all, all of these basic concepts and we just take a look at like how they might apply in different situations, and I think Munger sort of has been a champion on that. And Peter Kaufman is another one. And Peter Bevelin, those three in particular have been really good at here are some core concepts and here are how they apply outside of these domains in which they've been presented or how we can think about them. And most of the time, those examples are fairly esoteric or specific, but they give you a sense for like how you can think about evolution and how you can think about an example of evolution and applied to business would be, you know, things evolve and we have these mutations and those mutations sort of get beneficial selection in a certain environment. We think of in organizations that we don't want to try something that's failed again, but that's a really simplistic example. I mean, when you go to somebody and you're like, I have this idea, and they're like, oh, that failed. Like, we've tried that. And that is a really common thing. I talk to my friends who work in organizations, that happens all the time. What you're missing, though, is the, the environment in which it failed. You're not talking about that. You're not talking about, did the reason it fail change? Will it succeed now? Now, Nature is blind in terms of gene mutations. It just keeps trying the same experiments over and over again. And it ends up with different results, right? A trait that is valuable today might have been one that is way less valuable hundreds of thousands of years ago. And that's something that we can apply to business. And you can think about it, just it just requires a few extra seconds that you're not dismissing it out of hand and you're going, oh, that failed because of this, but this reason is no longer there. So maybe it will work now and that allows us to experiment better. And that's an example of like how we can apply evolution to business. So it sounds like the way you develop mental models is...
2: Reading a lot and just putting these things into practice. I mean, what, what have you found the best way to develop these mental models?
3: I think like reading and just thinking about like could this apply in, in a different scenario is a great example of that. But I mean, we we try to distill them for other people because we realize that not everybody has a ton of time to sort of like put this effort into reading biology textbooks or you know reading as much as we do. And so we're we're just trying to like here's a model. Here's how you can apply it in different ways. And we're going to add to it later, but we, we give you sort of like the 80% of it. We If you do the extra work, the problem is if we give you the whole model, You you won't actually learn anything. You need to do a little bit of mental work. You need to like, how does it apply to me? How does this apply to a situation that I'm facing? How can I use this? Are there other circumstances? And it's those questions that create the reflection for you personally. And that reflection leads you to sort of like your own abstraction or where it's going to be useful and where it's going to hinder you. And I think that like the big problem with mental models, I think the world would be just a much better place if we all just had the base level of education just included like all the big ideas from most of the major disciplines, not the new novel stuff, like the stuff that doesn't change, right? Like incentives and psychology and randomness and sort of like numeracy and. Evolution and power laws and systems thinking and feedback loops and chaos dynamics. And you know, those are the things that we want to think about. And those are the things that we want to learn. And those are the things that you learn in a particular domain, but you don't necessarily learn as a general education. And then we also want to overlay that with sort of what we call the general thinking concepts, which are just tools that allow us to think through problems in a different way. And we already talked about a couple of them, right? The map is not the territory. And sort of second order of thinking are just ways that we think about problems in a different way. You can also add thought experiment, right? Which is Einstein is famous for. And the 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 way that I landed on this was, you know, I did a lot of computer programming. And so you end up with this concept called a sandbox. And thought experiments are really like a sandbox, right? You run this experiment and it can't really wreck the system, but you're trying to think about what will happen. And it's in a contained sort of unit. And that was how Einstein came up with relativity, right? And I think there's a lot to that. And thought experiments also help us point out second order thinking. They help us think in first principles. They help us probabilistically think. And all these things sort of reinforce each other. So the more of them you have, the better you're able to see reality. And the better you're able to see reality, the fewer blind spots you're going to have. And the fewer blind spots you have, the better decisions you're going to make. Yeah, another guy
2: who who did something similar to what Munger and these other guys are doing was uh, the John Boyd, the military strategist with his OODA loop. He had sort of a similar idea of mental models, but I love this idea that he had. He wrote, he only wrote, published one piece of uh, published work, right? On his whole life, it's called Creation and Destruction. And he had this idea that you can take what I guess what he'd call mental models, and you can take parts of them from each other and then combine them together to start something new. So you destruct and then you create something new so that's what another fun like another level you can take with these mental models is not just use them you know discreetly by themselves but actually start mashing them together to create something new
3: Yeah, totally. And you can also use other people's mental models against them, right? If you're in a military or you work for an intelligence agency, you want to think about the cultural influences that affect people's mental models. You want to think about their genetic heritage. You want to think about their ability to analyze and synthesize and how they're likely to use new information. And you want to think about like how they're combining models and like how they're taught in schools to combine models. And if you think about organizations and diversity, you also want to think through it a different level about the, the diversity, like it gives it a different meaning to diversity, right? Diversity becomes like applying mental models in a different way. Diversity comes from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic status, different lives, different. But so often we're getting less and less diverse in organizations. We hire similar sort of backgrounds, similar people, and then more and more we're training them in very similar ways. And so they go for it, you know, they want to, everybody wants to be promoted. And so they get into an organization, they're like, what's my path to promotion? And it used to be like, You'd be like, it's your first day, buddy, like calm down. But now it's it's kind of expected. We, we, We do this where we give people a path to promotion. But what we're doing on that path is we're creating a checklist. We're creating a checklist of people who are going to combine, they're going to A, have the same mental models and B, they're going to combine them in the same way. So all of those people are more likely in the future to look at a problem in the exact same way. And I think Boyd's concept of almost combinatory play applied to mental models is really good.
2: So let's get into making decisions. So, like, first of all, let's talk about why, like, really, really smart people can sometimes make really, really bad decisions. Is it is it just incorrect mental models, or is it a combination
3: of something else? Well, I mean, like, think about what we were talking about earlier a little bit with the. information overload and sort of like how we consume information. It's really easy to tell when we're physically overloaded. Like if we go to the gym together and I put too much weight on a bench press, you're just not going to be able to lift it. And you know that you're physically overloaded, but it's really hard to tell when we're cognitively overloaded. And when we're cognitively overloaded, we tend to take shortcuts. Our brain wants to optimize for, this applies to everybody, right? It wants to optimize for the best solution that fits what we have immediately in our minds, and the more busy we are, the more hurried we are, the less we're going to have in our minds, the less that decision has to satisfy, which is also more likely to mean that decision's not good, especially if it's not a common decision that we're making. And so I think we get led astray in a couple of ways, right? One is just we're overloaded, we're overworked, we're overtired. And One of the reasons that all of that happens, which is really weird and perverse, is that we just make poor initial decisions. And the consequence of poor initial decisions is that we have to spend more time correcting those decisions, which increases our anxiety and our stress. And one of the ways that we can get out of this sort of like spiral is to counterintuitively just slow down, right? Actually schedule thinking time. I mean, that would be one way that we would improve decisions dramatically, whether you, and most of the people I know who make really good decisions on a consistent basis do that. And they're not people that you would think typically have time, right? They're people like Patrick Collison who run Stripe and. Toby, who runs Shopify, and those people make time to make decisions. They make time to think about problems, and they think about problems in a different way. And I think that's really important. And then you also counterintuitively, you want to do something that's first order negative, second order positive. We talked about that earlier, which is like you want to intelligently prepare to make decisions. What are the decisions that you're likely to be making in the next year or two? what information do you need now in advance of those decisions that's going to allow you to make better decisions? And I think too often we go searching for information at the point when we're making a decision. And what happens is we just end up in this weird state, right? And the weird state is that we're seeking out information when we need it. So we're more likely to overvalue the information to begin with. But that information is also commonly known right? So it's going to almost guarantee a mediocre decision. And that might be great. A mediocre decision might be really good if we don't know what we're doing. We sort of like want to follow the common wisdom because that's going to lead to average performance. And if we do know what we're doing, we want to know when to deviate because deviation, when we're not following others, is going to lead to outperformance. But too often we're sort of like don't know what we're doing and we deviate. And that leads to like what I call the lottery ticket. And it's like the Hail Mary pass in football. It might be successful and it might not. And if it is, it's not repeatable and you have no idea why it worked. And if it doesn't work, well, you just sort of absolve yourself and that you didn't know what you were doing. So you don't actually get better. Uh, it's the worst quadrant to sort of like be in if you were to map that out on a two by two matrix. And I think that we, we all suffer from these things. So the keys are like slow down. It seems counterintuitive. You might have to work a little bit longer at first, make better initial decisions. That's going to free up a lot of your time. That time, use that time to invest and intelligently preparing to make better decisions. That's going to vary depending on the type of career you have, the type of field that you're in. But you can start by understanding the big mental models that exist in the world, right? What are the 101 biggest ideas that I would have learned if I did a university education in just sort of like the basic ideas of each discipline? And then think about how those things apply to your specific field, your specific problems, and then get more esoteric, right? Like what information do I need to seek out to make better decisions in my niche. And then you want to take time to incorporate that, find it. And not a lot of people are going to do that. And slowly over time, you'll be able to leverage those decisions into more and more responsibilities. At first, it's going to be small. You might have an incremental advantage over somebody else in making a decision, but it might not even be or it's barely perceptible but over time as you make more and more consistently better decisions you get more and more responsibilities as you get more and more responsibilities that leverage starts to kick in and now you can that little advantage turns into a bigger advantage so it
2: sounds like you know decision making a lot of the the work isn't on the front end right it's not actually not actually when you make the decision it's just getting the information you use thinking using mental models to look at the problem in a 3D way and then when you when it comes time to actually making the decision i mean is it pretty easy at that point
3: well i mean if you that's a really interesting question because i think if you understand the problem it's really easy to know what to do and one of the indications that you don't understand the problem or you don't understand the trade offs or you don't understand what you're optimizing for you don't understand the situation the way you want to is that you get stuck in this sort of like paralysis of information overload or seeking out information at the time of making a decision in the hopes that it's just going to like satisfy you. And that, that's a good state to be in. You just have to be aware of it, right? None of these states are good or bad by default. Sometimes they serve you and sometimes they don't serve you. And your goal as a a thoughtful sort of practitioner of decision-making is to understand when is this likely to serve me? And when is this likely to hurt me? And do I have to deviate? And do I have to have a different process for this situation in particular? Like if you're picking toothpaste, it doesn't really matter. The consequences of a bad decision are easily remedied, right? But if you're making a consequential, irreversible decision, you wanna approach that problem differently. And what you don't wanna be doing is like Googling other people's thinking. You don't wanna be Googling sort of like information because you're gonna overvalue it. And when you overvalue it, you're gonna take risks that you probably shouldn't take. And anything on the first page of Google is probably like commonly known, right? So you're not even getting an information advantage over other people. So you have to think about all of those things when you're making a decision. I know it sounds like a lot, but it becomes a bit of a habit after a while. So, whenever you make these decisions,
2: one of my favorite mongerisms is this idea of like, you know, try. The goal in life is to try not to be consistently not stupid, instead of trying to be very intelligent. Because a lot of people they just they focus on making really, really brilliant decisions, but oftentimes they do that at at the expense of just making really dumb decisions.
3: Yeah, think think about like most of the concepts that we learn to look at the world are on a risk basis. So the tools that we have to evaluate situations are based on risk. Like it's like roulette, right? You know how many slots there are, you know, the odds it's going to land on any particular slot, assuming a random wheel, but life isn't really a about risk. It's more uncertainty. And uncertainty by its very nature means we might not know all the possible outcomes. And if we don't know all the possible outcomes, there's no way we know the probability of each individual outcome. So we have this idea of what we see and what we think is likely to happen, but we don't really know how accurate that view is. And so one of the ways to make that view more accurate is to take the inversion of that, which is like, what are the outcomes that I want to avoid? And what can I be doing now to avoid those outcomes? And if I can avoid those outcomes, well, now I'm more likely to get to the outcome I want. And I think working backwards is really, really hard for people to do. And if you think about it in meetings, like we had this quote a while ago, which is, avoiding stupidity is easier than seeking brilliance. But you that, I, I came up with that while well, I worked at the intelligence agency, and it was a really apt sort of quote because I, I was in meetings all the time where people are trying to like one-up each other in their brilliance and insightfulness and sort of like complicated view of a situation, but often the best decision really just when you're dealing with an uncertain environment is like, okay, well, what are, what are the things that would be really bad? How do we eliminate those from happening? And if we can eliminate all the bad outcomes, well, we're only left with good outcomes. And you can think about the problem forwards and sort of backwards. And I think that that gives you a much more holistic view of the situation, which leads to a better understanding, which leads to a better initial decision.
2: Yeah, I think one of the examples Munger gives of like, Good, like, heuristics or rules that will prevent you from doing stupid things. And if you just follow those, like, you'll have a pretty good life, like, like the 10 commandments from the Bible, right? If you can go, yeah. Not, oh, yeah, not killing anybody, not having any envy, not committing adultery, not lying. Like that's, you're, if you avoid those things, the consequences that come with those things, like your life is going to be pretty good. And then everything <laughs> else is just the cherry on the top after that like
3: avoid leverage, right? Like financial leverage, avoid, you know, alcohol and substance abuse. And if you think about it in a decision-making context, there's other things you can do to sort of like prime the environment, which is like, get a good night's sleep. Take time to think about the problem. Don't be rushed. I mean, when you look at sources of stupidity or where we're likely to be stupid, it's often when we're rushed when we're switching context really quickly, when we haven't got a lot of sleep, when we have something important to do. And I think that just slowing down and being like, what are the basics? Let's get the basics right. And wh- what do I control and what don't I control, right? To a large extent, you control how much sleep you get. To a large extent, you control whether you're rushed or not. Even if you work for an organization, I mean, you control a lot of your time, a lot more of your time than you think you do. And the the higher up you get in an organization, one of the weird things I found is I controlled less and less of my time, the higher I got. And I thought that was really weird when you know, I almost needed more and more control over my time and not less and less because the decisions have more and more consequences and you're expected to kind of context switch uh, you know, eight to 10 times over the course of a day and make, you know, large decisions that affect a lot of people. And you're not really given a lot of time to think about that. And I think that those are things that you want to start thinking about. What are those variables that we can get right? What things prevent us from, you know, or get in the way or encourage is probably a better way to look at that. What, what things encourage stupidity or encourage bad decisions? And avoid those. Yeah. And then you're better off than, you know, a lot of people just by doing that, right? You don't have to be brilliant.
2: Yeah, you don't have to be brilliant. (laughs) Just don't be stupid. So, beyond taking a multidisciplinary approach to decisions, have you come across any like tried and true tactics or checklists that you walk yourself through in making a decision?
0: I
3: think Munger's like, Munger came up with this, and most people have never even heard of it, but he came up with a very simple framework, which I call the Munger two step, which is, look at the situation. Do I understand it? Okay. If I don't understand it, that's one path away from it. In that path, you want to go seek out somebody who does understand it ideally. If I do understand it, I know what variables matter and I know how those variables interact. And then the second sort of step to this decision-making is how might I be fooling myself? What are the ways that I might be tricking myself into thinking that I'm right about this? And I think that that is a very simple heuristic and framework that people can start with. And I, one of the mistakes that I see people make is like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I recognize it. So it's super important that you recognize it, right? There's, again, a tying your ego to outcomes and not you personally being right enables you to see the world much more clearly than other people. And so when you're able to go to somebody else, the mistake that most of us make maybe we have to make a decision in an area that we're not an expert in, is that we ask people what they would do. We go to the auto dealership and we ask them like, what should we fix on our car? And of course they have their own incentives and we don't learn anything when they tell us. Or we go to somebody and we say, how should I pick a doctor? And we go to a doctor friend of ours and we ask them like, what doctor would you pick? What we should ask them is like, what variables would you consider relevant when you pick a doctor? because now we're actually learning. Now, the next time I have to pick a doctor, I have an idea of what those variables are, which is better than just somebody telling me what to do. But we're so busy and we're so sort of like starving for meaning in our life that we just Sometimes we coast, right? We ask people, like, who would you pick as a doctor? And then we're not actually taking advantage of an opportunity to learn. It might take five extra minutes to learn something, but you're going to learn something that applies over the course of your life. That's a great example of something that might be first order negative, second order positive. So I imagine on that second part of the Munger two step,
2: like going, you know, figuring out how you're, how you could be fooling yourself, like having a list of biases that exist out there that we know of and just walking through it check by side. it's like am i is this bias playing effect here is this bias playing effect there and then you know answer
3: those questions and you kind of get a better idea if you're fooling yourself or not i have like a bit of mixed feelings on that like i i think that the more intelligent you are the better the story you're going to tell yourself about why that bias doesn't apply in this particular situation i think biases are great at explaining why our minds trick us I think that we need to structure things more physically in our environment or phys- or with a process, structured thinking, to sort of account for biases, right? Whether we have reminders about what to do, whether we sort of like have this informal process that we adjust based on the type of decision making that we're doing. And I think that we want to incorporate that. and We also want to incorporate other people's views that are very diverse and different from us. And I think that that's going to allow us to sort of like get out of this. And we really, I mean, the ultimate one is just attach your ego to outcomes, not your ego to your opinion or your idea being the one that's adopted. And that's going to enable you to just seek clearer what's happening in the world. And I think ultimately that's what we want to do. We want to understand the situation. It was Wittgenstein who said to, to understand the problem is to know what to do.
2: And I imagine too, besides detaching your ego from your decision, like also detaching yourself from results might help because sometimes you can make a good decision, like the right decision, but the
3: results are bad because of factors that you had no control over. Yeah, sometimes. I, I think a lot of times it, we you have to play a repeatable game, right? And that repeatable game is like, how do I calibrate? Like, is my judgment of the fact that I made this right decision correct? And you have to be self-aware enough to be like, oh, I consistently think I'm right, but I'm getting bad outcomes. Well, there's something wrong, either with your view of the world, with how the decision is being implemented. There's something that, you know, there's a flag there that you need to look at. It doesn't mean that you're wrong. It doesn't mean that you made a bad decision, but it does mean that there's something there for you to look at. Too often, it's really easy easy just to convince ourselves that we, we did the best we could, we made the best decision or, you know, given the information we had, that was, that was all I would decide. But I used to ask people at the intelligence agency, like what information you had, what information did you use to make that decision? Show me. And people would just come up with stuff and they would come up with a post-hoc. And then that's how we started creating decision journals, right? Which is like, no, you're going to record this at the time you make the decision. And we're going to see like, this is how I can judge your judgment. This is how I can be comfortable trusting you to make decisions. I need to see the way that you think. I need to see the variables that you consider relevant. And together, we're going to hone your judgment. And if you're consistently missing something, it's my job as your boss or peer to sort of like point that out so that we can come to better decisions together. And if we have to structurally process that, maybe your decision journal includes a flag for, hey, are you uh, are you considering a large enough sample size? Because you have a bias towards small sample sizes, and just that alone, like you have to fill that in. It's not a checklist; it's something you have to fill out. You have to explain, and you have to do it in your own handwriting. And we were able to pretty dramatically raise the, I think, the quality of the decisions we made.
2: And, and is there some place people can go to learn about those decision journals, like how to do that?
3: Yeah, if you just Google Decision Journal, or just go to fs.blog/dj for Decision Journal, you'll. We have a template online that we use. We'll be updating that soon. Uh, we're working with the Special Forces to come up with a, a different, a slightly different version of it. Right now.
2: That's awesome. Well, Shane, this has been a great conversation and there's like so much more we could talk about. We could probably devote like entire episodes to like individual mental models. So people can go to fsblog.com, f, it's just fsblog to find out more about what you do.
3: Yeah. Or at Farnham Street on Twitter. Fantastic. Well, Shane Parrish, thanks for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, man. Really appreciated the conversation.
2: Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM podcast. Head over to artofmanliness.com where you find thousands of thorough, well-researched articles on personal finances, style, life, social skills, you name it, it's there. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think would get something out of it. Until next time, this is Brett McKay encouraging you to not only listen to the AOM podcast, but to put what you've learned into action.